Welcome to Fabulous. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Taylor. And I'm Shannon Payne. <laughs> it's another spooky episode, everybody. We're here for the spooky so much. Oh, it's the best. I, I'm not going to lie. I kind of deviated from spooky to uh, let's have a philosophy talk here. Awesome. <laughs> this is, uh, yeah. I love philosophy. But it's still spooky in an adjacent kind of way. This week we're um, on to a literary spooky. Yeah, a different kind. I'm yeah. for it. This this feels very us. Mm-hmm. This is an us moment here. I like it. It merges all the things we like best. Absolutely. It's going to be great. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> you guys are going to love this. <sighs> Just in case you guys are all also um, going through a week where your adult responsibilities are ruining your life. Because <laughs> they're ruining mine. <laughs> We're excited to tell you something that's less awful. Yes. I was about to tell you. I was about to tell Shannon, you guys, about how all the things that they told us that were going to be hard when we were little are not the things that are hard. Mm -hmm. Like, do you remember? I think it had to have been like second grade. Okay. Learning about if you got hit in the temple, you could die. Yep. And then having a... Did you do this? Did you have like a solid fear of getting hit in the temple and instantly murdered for like the next nine years? 100%. No one's ever hit me in the temple. That hasn't happened. Not once. Not once in my life. (sighs) But did they teach me how to use a credit card? Absolutely Absolutely not. not. (laughs) Absolutely not. It's been a mess ever since. (laughs) Did they teach me healthy like mental... Health habits? No. No. They just told me how to fill up a plate with the right um, fractions of food. Yep, 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 yep. Mm -hmm. School was so good. (laughs) (laughs) I know I learned a lot of things because I was watching this um, lady on Instagram talking about how she homeschools her kids. And I'm just Mm -hmm. like, how do you know they're going to know the stuff, though? Right. That feels like a lot of pressure. You just trust yourself to make them know? How do you... (laughs) I guess she what does. What kind of upbringing did you have to trust yourself I on that kind of level? What? I don't what, get it. What meds are you on? Right? I want some. Please. Please share with us. That would be delightful. <laughs> I'm just confident in my abilities to raise my children. <laughs> oh, okay. You know, that's all. <laughs> cool. Cool. <laughs> Mallory. Cool. <laughs> oh. But you know what's always um, great and wonderful and easy? What? Hanging out with you. It's always the easy thing. Hanging out with Liz. We like it a lot. It's so nice. You can probably guess the two stories we're going to talk about today. I don't think it's going to be difficult to guess at all. I'm going to start with... Bum ba da dum, Dracula. <gasps> yes, and I'm finishing it off with Frankenstein. I fucking love Frankenstein. I love Frankenstein. <laughs> it's so good. Something about the Gothic Victorian age was mm-hmm. just like those people were feeling real spooky. Oh, for sure. It was just maybe it's because they were dying a lot. That might be it. They were post plague, new to syphilis. Well, I guess not new to syphilis, but syphilis was getting to be a right. big deal. And syphilis you know, was on tour, <laughs> fighting all around on top of all of that. It's just a right. lot. And all the skirts, mm. and the so bad many weather, skirts, yeah, mm. mud, Ooh. even. Yep. It's a spooky time. It's a real, real scary time. They wrote some creepy stories. They did. I remember the first time I read Wuthering Heights, I was terrified. Uh-huh. Yep. It's not that scary, but it was scary. It was scary. <laughs> <laughs> I feel it. I feel it in my soul. <laughs> you know, when you're a little bit older, you kind of have heard 
through the through the internet or the world like kind of what's involved in a story mm-hmm. but when you're like 13 mm-hmm. and just going through the classic section of the book Ateria, like there's no tomorrow yep you open a book you don't know what's coming i have no idea it, it makes it a lot scarier yeah we should stop reading reviews for things i think that's what needs to happen just dive in i'm bad at that though <laughs> It's probably not safe. Uh, no. I don't recommend. That's not my official advice. No, don't do that. Um, so Dracula is a vampire. No way. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> Vampires have so many different names. Um, um Shria Strigoi. That's the Greek one. That one's fun to say. Strigoi. Oh, that just sounded like a pasta for a second there. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> I thought we were moving on to that episode and I was for it. My heart was there. It's a possibility. <laughs> But they're all just in general life-sucking undead creatures, uh-huh, uh-huh. usually with the bloods. Yes. Yep. Um, and they stem from probably pretty ancient folklore about okay. the people coming back to life, being accused of vampirism and having to be staked. The stake mm. thing goes way back. Not invented with Buffy. Oh, dang it. Okay. Um, there's two famous vampire cases that were officially recorded Okay. in Eastern Europe. So Peter... Blagoviec. He died when he was 62, but he wasn't very good at it. Oh, no. <laughs> so he returned to his son and asked for some food, but his son refused him. And then they found Peter dead the next day. But for reals this time. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, but apparently some neighbors around died from loss of blood. What the hell? And when you put all those things together. Vampire. Vampire. Obviously. The second one is Milos. Milos Cesar. Say, did I spit it? It's not a Spanish name. So okay. probably said that last part wrong. Milos anyway. He was an ex-soldier, now a farmer, who was attacked years ago by vampires when he was out in his field. Eey. When he eventually died, other people in the area also died. <laughs> that never happened. <laughs> Coincidentally. Um, so they thought that Milos was wreaking all kinds of undead havoc. Ooh. Yeah. Um, government officials actually exhume Peter and Milos's bodies. They write reports. They publish stuff. It fuels the hysteria. Um, and a lot of important people believe that it's real. At some point, Voltaire reads a report by some French guy, and he's like, that's legit. Vampires are real. 100% sold. <laughs> Done. <laughs> uh, it wasn't until Empress Maria Theresa sent her personal physician... The Empress is always solving shit, you guys. Always. Do your own damn homework. Right? She might have needed her physician. It's possible. So she sends her personal physician to investigate and everything kind of calms down. Um, He confirms that vampires do not in actuality exist. And then the Empress passed a bunch of laws (laughs) to keep people from digging up the graves to stake their dead neighbors. Oh. Because they were like, you know what would be better than waiting for vampires to get us? Let's just dig up all our dead neighbors and stake them. Perfect. Preemptively. Just in case. Yeah. So she said, that's a no. That's a no from the Empress. Oh, okay. Yeah. Plus, I mean, you guys are busy. A little bit. Get back to work. Please. There's probably several famines on right now. At least one. (laughs) Possibly two. Better go. (laughs) You know, the Empress isn't contributing to the food stuff. No, God, no. You gotta go to work. Get back on this, please. 
Um, basically every people of the earth has some sort of vampire, like an undead monster with a thirst for blood, like chupacabra. Okay. Yeah. They're everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, they're not all called vampires, but in like Eastern Western Europe, um, and then it kind of, it spreads over into Germany and England where they start writing more and more stories. Vampires, the general name we're going by. Okay. In most Slavic languages, it sounds like vampire. That makes sense. So okay. That's that's us. That's that, the, that's what we do. That's the dark, scary mountain vampire guy. That's this legend. Mm. In the late 17th and 18th centuries, um, that's when the lore properly emerges. That's when the spread that I was talking about happens. But the classy modern vampire <laughs> comes from the story The Vampire, written in 1819 by English writer John Polidori. I'll be talking about him a little later, too. Is that how you say his name? Pol- Polid- Polidori? That's how I've Polidori. been saying it in my brain this Excellent. whole week, so yes. He spells it Pi or P-Y-R-E, mm-hmm. which is maybe just the gothic fancy spelling. He could have just been having some fun. <laughs> <laughs> it might not have been an official dictionary spelling yet, so you just follow your heart. Absolutely. Love it. Bram Stoker's Dracula, however, is the essential vampire novel. Absolutely it is. Influenced by um, Joseph Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's Carmela. Carmela is not a book I've read yet. Okay. Um, I haven't either. But apparently, like, in the first drafts of Dracula, it was like, he put his story in the framework of Carmela. Okay. But it changed a little bit afterwards. But it's definitely inspired. Um Dracula gave us a rich, full-bodied vampire. <laughs> We've all been lusting after ever Absolutely. since. So let's talk about Bram. Ooh, tell me about Bram. Abraham. That's why they call him Bram. <laughs> Cute, huh? I like that better. Yeah. I like that a lot. Abraham Bram Stoker um, was the acting manager of the Lyceum Theater and the assistant to, the, to um, stage actor Henry Irving. And for extra pocket money... He was writing romance and sensation novels. Oh my goodness, of course he was. Yes. <laughs> He's in his um in his 20s when all of this fun stuff is going on. Dracula was the seventh of his 18 published novels. Okay. So he wrote a bunch of stuff. Somebody said he, he wasn't writing for literature's sake. He was writing to sell things. Okay, then I can see it. But if you if you do just even a, a cursory Google, you'll see that um, the literature spooky nerds have been deep diving into his shit for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. So he was okay at it. Obviously. Yeah. Yes. One time. <laughs> this is my favorite Bram Stoker story. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> Okay, one time, Bram sent an effusive love letter across the pond to none other than my uncle, Walt Whitman. Shut up. True story. Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) On the internet, side note, the internet is pretty positive that Bram was was queer, homosexual. Uh Um, In fact, just like a month after... His friend Oscar Wilde was imprisoned for homosexual homosexuality. Was when Bram started writing Dracula. Okay, so if he wasn't himself homosexual, he was in a community. Mm-hmm. Um, but we think he is because he wrote a love letter to Walt Whitman. Oh, I love it so much. Who's a, who's a boy? Absolutely. Mm. So he wrote the letter and then he kept it on his desk for four years, waiting for the courage to send it. That's. My heart's pounding for him. <laughs> and on Valentine's Day of 1879, he dropped that spicy meatball into the mail. 
He wrote a new letter in explanation saying, It is as truly what I wanted to say as that light is light. That's lovely. I know. Oh my God. So in the explanation letter, he says, um, the years which have passed have not been uneventful to me, and I have felt and thought and suffered much in them, and I can truly say that from you, I have had much pleasure and consolation. It's yeah, really tender. That is. Um, so for the girls, gays, and theys who are, like me, buried alive in the anguish and hope <laughs> of Miss Allison, Miss Taylor Allison Swift's queerness, um, please take a step into this letter with me. Perfect. I think you'll find it oddly familiar. Okay. (laughs) It's so good. I love it. Okay. He says, if you're the man I take you to be, you will like to get this letter. If you are are not, I don't care whether you like it or not and only ask that you put it into the fire without reading any further. He goes through this whole letter. He's like, I'm pretty sure we're both talking about the same thing, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're, we're together in this, right? You're with me? We're on the same page. Uh, yeah? <laughs> um, it says, I would like to talk to you as men who are not poets do not often talk. I think that at first a man would be ashamed for a man cannot in a moment break the habit of comparative resistance that has become second nature to him. But I know I would not long be ashamed to be natural before you. Oh, my. So this is after Whitman has published Leaves of Grass. Okay. Yep. Which is very, very commonly understood to be um, homoerotic. Right. It's hot, hot shit. Oh, for sure. It's very beautiful and wonderful. Mm -hmm. And you can for sure read it and not see that in there. But you're blind. You're real blind. (laughs) You maybe need to take a second look. So, so Bram's not going off of nothing here. No, there's, there's some inclination that this is a possibility. And when he's saying that to me, it's like you, you were, you were brave enough to be open to the world. Mm-hmm. And I know that if I was open in front of you, because I know this about you, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be afraid. Yeah. I think that's really, really beautiful. I love that. Because he also says um, in the letter things that allude to the fact that I'm telling you things that I would never tell anyone else that mm-hmm. I've never talked about before. Yeah. I'm being more plain with you yeah. than I've ever been before. Like, just so you know, well... <laughs> This is what I do. And in the letter, he calls him Walt Whitman. <laughs> like how I call Seth, 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 Seth Taylor. Taylor. <laughs> oh, my God. He's like, listen, Walt Whitman. <laughs> it's so, so It's love is Absolutely. what I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> the truest form. He ends it. Um, well, he has another little sentence after this, but close to the end, it says, how sweet, how sweet a thing it is for a strong, healthy man with a woman's eye and a child's wishes to feel that he can speak to a man who can be, if he wishes, father and brother and wife to his soul. So he's in love with Walt Whitman. 100% in love with Walt Whitman. It's beautiful. It's incredibly beautiful. Um, and, uh... Bram doesn't get married for a while. He stays single until he's 30. Okay. And then he marries a woman and they don't have a sexual relationship. Okay. Um, so he does find, um, I hope they're BFFs. Right. Like, just like the companionship is on point. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do spoilers, but are you watching the, what's the new Game of Thrones about the dragons? Dragon Tales Game House of, of Thrones? House of the Dragon. <laughs> that. Um, in their, in the last episode, 
I haven't seen the last episode yet. There's a lovely marriage conversation. Okay. And it will make everyone feel really good inside. Okay. I'm excited. I'm excited. We're we're one away from that. We got a little behind. I liked it a lot. It made me feel nice. I like that. That's all I'll say. Stop. (laughs) Shut your mouth. Stop it. I have the hardest time not telling I'll things. Come, I'll come back. As soon as we've watched it, I'll come back. We're going to chat about this. Keep I'm your excited. Mouth shut, Elizabeth. You can do it. Okay. So he's in love with Walt. He's living his best life. He's having lots of lovely conversations with men in the theater. And and like he's friends with Oscar Wilde. Damn. Like his life is full of some really lovely words. Right. Um, but he's also living at a time where being who he is is illegal. Of course. Yeah. Um, so he has to be a secret person. Which is sad. That's not an easy way to live your life. And if you think about the way that vampires live in the world, say say vampires live in the world. Right. They are also something that if you're if you know, you know. Mm-hmm. But if you don't know, you you won't see it. Right. And so I think he has a unique understanding of this kind of lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very interesting. If vampires are real, I'm going to be very sad because I apparently don't know because I don't know one vampire and it's going to hurt my heart. That shit fucking pisses me off and mm. you know it. Mm. They're just over there being hella wealthy and ancient. Right. They got to see fuck, Notre Dame before it burned. Yeah. I know. And they're just fine with it. Yeah. They're just not sharing. They have Kate Beckinsale, so they're good. True. (laughs) They're doing just fine. (laughs) Does that mean that Pete Davidson's a vampire? Has to be. Which means, obviously, Kim Kardashian. Of course. Shit. I solved it. That's it. We did it. I know how the world works. Mm -hmm. Boom. (laughs) Episode over. Done. (laughs) I was just about to say, let's do this again sometime. We're turning it off. <laughs> okay, so now I'm going to tell you about the book. Okay. Okay. So Bram did a mammoth amount of research in preparation for Dracula. He had over 100 pages of notes that we still have. Wow. That people have been studying and looking at forever. Mm-hmm. Especially when it comes to the argument over who his characters are based on. Like, okay. People are seriously feuding about this, it seems, academically. <laughs> We're in a fight. (laughs) Published by. (laughs) I would read that paper so hard. Same. (laughs) Professor Brown, We're in a Fight by Dr. Blah Blah. blah. I would love it. 100%. That'd be the best. That'd be amazing. Oh, I want that to be real. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so his notes included chapter summaries and outlines, so we have all of that cool stuff, wow. which is very neat. I love it. I don't think we often end up with, like, a compendium history of a right. novel yeah. and a novel. That's really, it's it's really so cool. cool. Um, the story was written as an epistolary novel, which is a great kind. That's the kind that are written, written in, like, letters. Oh, These so days, was, sometimes they're in text. Oh, my goodness. Look at Yes. Look, God. They're in the same kind they're of soup. They're in the same soup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, this one's written in letters and journal en- entries and um, some newspaper articles. One of the characters is actually recording his voice mm-hmm. um, through a, is it a gramophone where they record it on a, on a, on a cylinder? Yeah. I don't actually know. I don't know. I was supposed to say, it feels right. Brian's going to put that in the homework section. Damn yep. it. <laughs> Even more. I'm always making us more homework. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, 
there had been other vampires in literature, like we talked about, but Dracula is the most enduring. And the way that we think of vampires now, or the way we thought of vampires up until 2005, Mm -hmm. um, is the way that Bram described them. Yes. So he kind of, he he studied different kinds of lore in different places, but he sort of compiled, this is what a vampire is. And that's what we rocked with for a really long time. I love it. It's neat, huh? Yeah. So mm, Dracula could turn into a bat. Love it. A wolf. Love it. Or a sexy black misty fog cloud. Love it. So in on this. Um, He could control storms and fog in his general vicinity. Mm. He could not eat or drink any normal foods, but subsisted only on blood. He lived in a spooky castle had oodles of money, and was super old but became young again on the blood of pretty young ladies. Oh, my goodness. He also had, like, three vampire women who lived with him and were, like, subordinate to him and very sexy. Absolutely. Like, he's just... It feels so trite, except for he made it up, so it's not yet. So it's yet. not yet. <laughs> <laughs> he <wonderful>. did it. <laughs> Maybe his interpretation was brilliant and super scary, but maybe Bram was less than adept with American copyright laws, making his work public domain and free to use. Yep. Either way, we embrace this story with our whole bloody gruesome hearts. 100%. Bram wrote the first theatrical adaptation, and it was performed only once at the Lyceum Theater where he worked a week before the novel was published to establish Bram's copyright for theatrical adaptations. So he did have some copyright savvy, just not the American kind. Maybe he just didn't have a good American attorney. That's fair. It turned out to be a bummer. Yeah. 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 Um, Bram created the character of Dracula with inspiration from Transylvanian folklore and history. You've probably heard or seen the, the character might be based on... This is the word I told you. I don't know how to say Valkyrie, Valkyrie, Valkyrie is the place he's from. Okay. Um, Prince Vlad the Impaler mm-hmm. or Elizabeth Bathory, mm-hmm. who did the bathe in the blood for the young. Yeah. Um, but those cats are not mentioned in Stoker's notes. Okay. And Interesting. this is, this is where the we're in the fight paper comes from. Like they're like, but he said he talked to this guy and this guy believes in that. So he knew about it, uh-huh. which means like, uh, like in the, in a court of law, <laughs> you know how like if Taylor Swift ever heard somebody else's song that said "Shake It Off," then like she'll lose the battle for "Shake It Off," right? But if you can't prove she ever heard it, then she wins, right? It's this kind of argument, okay? In literary papers between a lot of smart people oh over a long period of time. <laughs> oh my god, it's actually wonderful. It's I such love it. drama. Yes, so good. When I mean, the only drama I ever saw for my English professors was if somebody else used their coffee mug. Yeah, that's. Yeah. And the one teacher who would bring her dog and the other teachers who were like, you shouldn't bring your dog mm. because they don't like happiness. Right. Yeah. Of course. So I'm excited for the drama anyhow. Absolutely. Uh, he learned the name Dracula from the Whitby Public Library. His family was there on vacation. Mm. <laughs> it means devil in Romanian. And in his notes, he wrote, Dracula means devil. While Kinians were accustomed to give it as a surname to any person who rendered himself conspicuous by courage, cruel actions, or cunning. Oh. So it's like, perfect. Yeah. I like it. Absolutely. After its English publication, the novel was eventually translated into Icelandic and published under the name Powers of Darkness, with okay. a foreword written by Bram. 
Nice. When it was finally translated back into English, significant differences in the story were discovered. Names were changed. The story was like tightened up and shortened. And and this part is important because I'm trying to understand Francis Ford Coppola and I'm never going to get there. (laughs) The the story was found to be much more overtly sexual Uh in this Icelandic Icelandic version. So I'm thinking maybe that's the one Francis read. Because his interpretation is hella spicy. Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Have, have you seen it, Keanu Reeves? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yep, 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 yep. It's so sexy. And I, oh, watched, yeah, for sure. I watched it before I read it. Okay. Because I'd never read Dracula before. And I'm watching it and I was like, Seth, this is a Victorian novel. And he's like, but they're... And I was like, I, I know. know. <laughs> How, I know. Is the book going to be this sexy? I sure hope so. <laughs> it kind of, it kind of is. It can be, but in a secret. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Damn. You know though. the thing Damn. is, um, in the same way that we're like nothing is new, everything's always existed, but it's existed in like coded language. Uh-huh. If no one ever tells you, maybe people are just smarter than me. <laughs> but there are some things I would never read it for that. Yeah. And someone tells me, and I'm like, oh, that's oh. definitely what's happening. Now I get it. <laughs> Changes everything. Um, So thanks, other people, for telling me how to understand things. Thank you for being smarter than me and then sharing with me. Right. I want to be in on the cool stuff. Yes. All the time. Yes. Um, No one talks about Dracula without talking about the sexy parts. No. And what's a sexier monster than a vampire? Right. Do you have any? I don't know that they're... mm. I know that that a bunch of women on TikTok are talking about this Ice Planet Barbarian book that's supposed to be straight porn. Okay. Um, Maybe that guy. I'm going to have to like check it out first, I think. But I don't have an educated opinion. It's a possibility. Right now, I'm still leaning towards just like it's vampires. They're hot. Yeah. Gender and sexuality are big themes in the book. Literary analyses also discuss the novel's depictions of race and disease. Um, vampires and probably all folk creatures have functioned as metaphors in literature forever. Um, there are some very compelling looks at anti-Semitism, xenophobia, misogyny, and homophobia in Dracula. Mm-hmm. So when that guy says he was just trying to get paid, um, sure, but also he's not bad at this. Right. Like, there's a lot of cool stuff. In fact, there's at one point, um, so so he he can't He's not safe to sleep anywhere where dirt from his homeland isn't. Mm-hmm. So when he later comes to England, he has like 15 trunks of dirt from his house. Yes. And um, when the people, like the shipping company, when UPS is <laughs> delivering some of these boxes to his house, they open the door and it doesn't smell good. It smells like death. And this guy says it smells like Jerusalem, which is a pretty pointedly anti-Semitic thing to say. Absolutely. So you mean it smells Jewish yep. and Jewish things don't smell good. Right. Um, and there are a couple of different um, incidences in the book where like little things like that are said. Mm-hmm. Or especially, as I'll talk about later, one of my favorite characters, my favorite character in the mm-hmm. book, um, um, Dr. Van Helsing, is from Amsterdam. And his, all of his dialogue is written in like a broken english yeah dutch accent mm-hmm. um because they wanted they don't want you to forget he's different right uh and and things like that 
people point to a lot in this book. Like the, the differences are not forgotten. We don't mm-hmm. let go of them. We want to make sure we know. And it, they talk about how um, like vampires are associated with the Romani because of the region where vampires are supposed to have mythologically come from. Mm-hmm. And so that makes them more animalistic. Yeah. And just like a lot of hateful shit. Yeah. Um, and then in general, the idea that this vampire is coming from somewhere else into the place where we live. Yep. And how that might change things for us. And right. we don't like that. Right. Um, so they're all like, they're not the main point of the book. It doesn't get, um, in the words of one of my friends, husband, too political. <laughs> Which is not the way anyone should ever respond to anything about Wakanda. So fuck off. Right. <laughs> That's personal. Mm. Um, but but it's but it's present. Yes. It's happening. And at a certain point, I was listening to it on Audible, which is always lovely to do when they um cast it. Yes. So the different people are done by different people. Mm-hmm. And I was enjoying that. But um I was just getting exhausted by them using this fake accent for Dr. Van Helsing all the time because mm-hmm. it just felt like I get it. I know he's not from here. I know what we're doing. Why I do understand. We, like, stop harping on it. Yes. <laughs> uh, but also some people's voices sound different. And maybe yeah. that, that maybe that's important because they want it to stand out. They yes. want to say that this is different and we still respect him and he's the one who's saving all of our lives. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm seeing it totally wrong. Um, but it's there. Yeah. And the other thing they talk about um, as far as misogyny and the experience between people who identify as male or female. I'll tell you a, a little bit more about the characters so you'll know what I'm talking about. Okay. But, but Mina, uh, Winona Ryder, yep. says a couple of times she talks about the new woman. And I was, um, who was I? T- I can't remember if it's a thing I read or a thing I watched, but all of it's linked in, in the <laughs> yes. show notes. They were talking about how um, Mina sort of represents, she's a school teacher. She represents the new woman as um, someone who's intellectual. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Van Helsing says, like, she's so well-spoken. She has the brain of a man. Yeah. Um, but we have to be careful what we tell her because she's the heart of a woman and she'll cry. <laughs> oh you know? Um, and they talk about Lucy, her friend, um, as the new woman because she's overtly sexual and when the three different men propose to her and she makes a joke like why can't I marry all of them if they all love me (laughs) you know um and but at the same time we shouldn't tell women things because they're sensitive uh they can't do this sort of thing because it's for men Mm -hmm. like it's very there's so many different things coming up in this book it's it's interesting to look past the scary vampire part into how these people are interacting with each other Mm -hmm. because at the same time that they're saying mina's too sensitive they're like oh we made a mistake when we didn't tell her keeping mina in the loop is actually going to be how we solve this problem Mm -hmm. and and to me that just calls back to how bram is the kind of person who is underestimated yeah for perhaps um i don't know what he acted like or how he behaved but if he was the TV version of a gay man in theater. Yes. Then maybe people underestimated him. And all the time he was like, actually, have you read Dracula? I'm very cool. Mm-hmm. You know? And so it, maybe he's having all of these different um, uh, M- M- what's the word for that? Empathetic? Empathetic. The yeah. empathetic experiences with these different characters. Because he's also been different. Mm-hmm. And we we have all experienced being different in some way. Definitely. Uh, so it's it's 
relatable. One hundred percent. It's very, it's very relatable. Yes. And then we're like, but also vampires. But also, that's relatable too, right? right? I could that could be in my life, right? Right. Right. Yeah. Could be neat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So now that you sort of know about how the book was written and a little bit about Bram, let's talk about it. I love it. Um, Count Dracula is a count. He was always going to be a count even before his name was Dracula. Mm-hmm. That's just in the book. Um, and in the movie, he's played by Gary Oldman, which is epic and amazing. 100%. Period. End of story. But the movie has a backstory for him that doesn't exist in the book Mm -hmm. that makes it really fun and juicy. Yeah. So in the movie, he's Vlad, the Impaler. And he goes to war, fights all these battles. He wins. But then the bad guys send a letter to his wife saying he died. And so before he gets home... His beloved wife, her name's Elizabetta. Elizabeth, I wrote it down somewhere. Um, she takes her own life Aww. because she's so sad that he's gone. Mm-hmm. So when he gets home and finds out what happened and the priest is like, they wrote her this letter and it was a lie. Um, he curses God and says, you know, fuck off. And he stabs his sword into a cross that starts to bleed, drinks the blood, mm. curses himself. Now he's a vampire forever. That's how you do it. Yeah. This part about his wife, Elisabetta, is important because of the costuming in the movie that we'll talk about later. That Uh, is mm -hmm. so amazing. Yes. (laughs) It's the best. So good. Okay. So Dracula's in his castle. He's Mm -hmm. trying to buy a bunch of property in England. And Mm -hmm. that is how Keanu Reeves ends up at his house. Yes. Keanu Reeves is a baby lawyer. And his boss has gout, if I remember right. <laughs> so he can't go. So he goes. And then when he gets to Dracula and they, they finish some real estate deals, Dracula's like, and now you stay for a month. Mm-hmm. Which freaks Keanu out. Then Gary Oldman, Dracula, climbs down the side of the building. Mm-hmm. And because, let me just read what I wrote. I love it. Because I want to make sure I bring this point up. <laughs> um, Jonathan does not keep the rules of the Count's house. Not because he's a dummy, but because he knows he's a prisoner. He doesn't have any idea of the actual danger in. And he's being a bit, and this is where I need your help. What is the word for sassy curiosity? Like the kind where Mm. you know that your behavior isn't appropriate and you'll probably get in trouble, but also you sort of want to piss somebody off. Um, What's the name of that? He's being that. A brat? (laughs) <laughs> I don't know. What is the word? Mm. I couldn't think of it. I was trying to write this. Mischievous? <laughs> I guess. Maybe that? I don't know. But That's it's, the best I can come up with. But it's not as sneaky as it is sassy. Uh, yeah. Like, I'll probably get caught, but I don't care. I'm doing it. You know? Because mm-hmm. you made me stay in your castle. Yeah. So, that's where Keanu's at. <laughs> People had a hard time with his performance at the end because his English accent is... It's fine. Yeah. I feel like people invest a lot more in vocal coaching now. I think so. Than they used to. Yes. Especially, like, remember when Kevin Costner was Robin Hood? What the fuck? Yeah. So I think we care a little bit more about that now. Just a bit. <laughs> Just a tiny, <laughs> tiny bit. I can't remember. I think it was Anne Hathaway who I heard, like, she will not fake speak in an English accent anywhere but when she's performing because she's... It's embarrassing. That's fair. She doesn't want to get made fun of. Yeah. <laughs> She's like, I practice those specific words with my uh-huh. coach. <laughs> Makes sense. I can't do the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> 
Okay, so at the same time that Jonathan, that Keanu Reeves is doing his thing with the with the vampires. Oh, when he does wander off being, um, what did I say? Sassily curious. Mm-hmm. He ends up falling asleep and then like these, the three vampire ladies sneak in. Mm-hmm. And he is like into it. He hears them coming and he was like, and he's like, this is hot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And oh, shame on me because he's engaged to Winona Ryder. Well, oh, yeah. you already. Um, but also, like, these ladies are coming. For sure. And um, this is where a very interesting swap happens that Bram Stoker wasn't sure everybody would be down with. Mm-hmm. He thinks it's hot because they're they're stronger than him. And okay. he has to be, like, submissive to uh-huh. these three crazy ladies who appear out of, of love smoke. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bram was like, I don't know if they're going to dig it. Mm-hmm. But it's hot, so it, it's in. It, yes. Keanu dug it. Absolutely. So did Jonathan. <laughs> so did we all. It was great. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, so while Jonathan's hanging out with these ladies, um, Lucy and Wilhelmina are together. So Mina, Wilhelmina, that's cute, huh? It is really I cute. Mina. I like it. Um, she's Jonathan's fiance, mm-hmm. and her BFF is Lucy. Okay. And she's visiting Lucy. Wilhelmina is the, like we were talking about, buttoned up school teacher. All her costumes are super modest all mm-hmm. the way up to the all neck. All the way to the tippy top. Um, Long, long sleeves. She's, um, and she's not as wealthy as Lucy. Yeah. Um, so she's a little, a little prim, but she's very smart. And they emphasize a few times that she can write in shorthand, mm-hmm. which is for men only and makes her super genius. Yes. oh my goodness it's so funny because shorthand becomes such like a female thing when women become the secretaries Mm -hmm. because for a long time men were also secretaries right and it's just interesting how things change so lucy meanwhile with with wilhelmina has been proposed to by three different men jesus so um arthur dr john and quincy Dr. John (laughs) are all in love with Lucy Mm -hmm. and they all three propose. She chooses to marry Arthur, but she remains in really close friendship with the other two. And they're able to like, and they're still three friends with each other. It's, it seems like in the sequel to this, it's one of those Kindle unlimited reverse Mm -hmm. harem books. That's the vibe you get from that. I, I feel this. Yeah. Yep. It's a team sport at this point. Absolutely. But low key. <laughs> um, and then when all of the sneaky stuff starts happening, when when Dracula shows up um, in the UK mm-hmm. and starts um, hunting Lucy, basically, yes. all of these men who love her and Mina come together to try to save her life. And Dr. John calls his mentor and professor, um, Abraham Van Helsing, to come and help them out. He is there's there wasn't one before him. I was like, well, is, did he get that from another vampire legend? No, mm, this is the Van this Helsing. Is it. He made him. Yeah. This is the vampire hunter of old. Uh, OK, so um, this is a this is from a letter that John, Dr. John Seward writes to Arthur um, regarding Van Helsing, just to kind of tell you who he is. 
He's a seemingly arbitrary man. This is because he knows what he's talking about better than anyone else. He's a philosopher and a metaphysician and one of the most advanced scientists of his day. And he has, I believe, an absolutely open mind. No one can fucking shut up about that. <laughs> and it's a great attribute, but they say it a lot. No, he has a very open mind. Yes. Like they, a lot. They say it a lot, Shannon. <laughs> Not so much. <laughs> This with an iron nerve, a temper of the ice brook, an indomitable indomitable resolution, self-command and toleration exalted from virtues to blessings and the kindliest and truest heart that beats. These form his equipment for the noble work that he is doing for mankind, work both in theory and practice, for his views are as wide as his all-embracing sympathy. And he's played by Anthony Hopkins. It was also great. So you put all that together in your brain. You're like, yep. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. He, will, he will definitely save us all. Absolutely. Uh, and so so I don't want to give away the whole story or just retell it because that is less fun than you having to read it or just go watch the movie. <laughs> um, but we've assembled a pretty wrecked group of motherfuckers. For, like, for sure, though. <laughs> for sure. And does Gary Oldman almost get it over on all of us? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty darn close. Yeah. Um, it gets intense. It's uh-huh. great. <laughs> At one point, Winona Ryder is in the thralls of some sort of possession spell mm-hmm. where she tries to tear the bodice of her dress yep. open mm-hmm. out in the middle of nowhere yep. on their way to Dracula's castle. Mm-hmm. And and poor Dr. Van Helsing is like, well, if you take it off, I'll probably look, but in a very gentlemanly way, Absolutely. only in the look on his face. <laughs> it's intense. Yep. The whole thing. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. You should watch it. It's very Absolutely. good. It's so good. I read something that said that um, Winona Ryder actually brought the script to um, Francis Ford Coppola. I was oh. like, can we make this movie? Um, which is interesting because the only thing anybody has to say poorly about it is that maybe Keanu and Winona were cast in the movie because of studio pressure because they were such big names and would make a lot of money Mm -hmm. and their performances aren't um, the best in the movie or the best that they were capable of. Yeah. Um, But it's still, it's still great. It's still really, really good. (laughs) And it's, and it's better when you learn about um, Echo. Echo? Yeah, like Iko. I'll tell you, know you about me. I know how to do pronunciations for sure, for sure. She's fucking amazing. So in 1992, Francis Ford Coppola directs Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, everybody loves it. It makes a ton of money. Mm-hmm. We talked about the actors when we were talking about the characters, and now we're going to talk about the most important part, <gasps> namely Iko Ishioka, who designed the costumes for the film. Yes, Iko. Aiko Ishioka is an art director or she oh, sorry she was she's passed away I think it was in 2012 or it was pretty, it feels recent ish I don't understand time no. and I can't decide if it's the plague if it's ADHD if Some I just don't get enough sleep at night I don't know yeah but time doesn't move the way it should no um but she's um no longer with us but her work is absolutely so she was an art director and production designer and she was she was so good at her job that it was sort of rude of Francis to ask her to just do the costumes for mm-hmm. Dracula. But he convinced her by explaining how important the costuming was to him and his vision for the production. 
and telling her how much of the budget he was going to give to her designs. Um, he said the costumes will be the set. Okay. Because usually when she takes a job, she's the production designer. Right. She's the art designer. Yeah. She makes, she does all the pictures and the director just bosses people around when they start going. Uh-huh. Um, so she was like, that's actually not what I do. And he was like, but wait. Hang on. It's going to be cool. Mm-hmm. And it, it, was. it was. Can we talk about the costumes? They're incredible. Okay. Oh, okay. So the first time you see Dracula uh-huh. come in, he's wearing this crazy red armor that it looks like so. striated like muscles. Yeah. He looks like a man with no skin, but like a samurai shaped helmet. Mm-hmm. And um, Aiko does a couple of things that she said in a... In a video I watched where, like, she was going for an East meets West kind of thing. Yeah. So she combines this Western Europe stuff with, like, the Chinese heritage and iconography um, of of that culture and sort of merges them together. Mm -hmm. And what she makes is so interesting to me because if, if, like, the the movie does, we we think that Dracula is Vlad. Mm -hmm. Then we're talking about a time period when when... As a soldier, as a warrior, he would have met all different kinds of peoples in battles. Right. Like, like the Hans. Yeah. You know, like all of, he would have so many different cultural influences that he would experience when he was away from home. For sure. And then when he would come back, of course, pieces of that would remain on him. Mm -hmm. He he would have influences. Yes. And so to me, it just made a lot of sense. Yeah. It made it feel real. Put it, oh, it made it. it feel really like put it in history to me. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed that part a lot. Um, another really interesting she does for Dracula um, when when he's still in the castle, he's wearing this red silk robe with a long, long red train, mm-hmm. and up on the what do you call like the lapel area, like the ch- the top chest of the jacket of the robe, are these okay. golden embroidered dragons. Ooh. They call it imperial iconography. Okay. So only like emperors were allowed to wear these dragons. Oh, fancy. Yeah. So you put like this Turkish warrior and these long flowing red train, like a river of blood with this Chinese imperial iconography on his robe. It's definitely like the hybrid culture she was going for. For sure. Like his, his presence East meets West. Yes. Like, check she did Love it. it spot on um one of the one of the most interesting pieces of costuming in the movie is lucy's wedding dress mm-hmm. that she is in when she turns into a vampire yep and it is over the top 100 percent. and the color of it is based on that lizard who's like you know the dragon that squirts him in the eyes in Jurassic Park? Oh, yeah. The little lizard version mm-hmm. of that. Okay. Is kind of what it's based on. And so when they were filming, Francis wanted her to kind of like, and the actress too, who plays Lucy, we're going to have her move like a lizard and like crawl mm, on the floor. Yeah. Or maybe do like a girl from the exorcist. Uh, yes. A crab walk situation. Yes. She couldn't do it in that dress. That's fair. Because it's so much. Yeah. And so Aiko was like, I guess we can, I guess we can change it. I guess we can redo it. And Francis was like, nope, we'll change the scene. Perfect. The dress, the dress is good. We'll change the scene. <laughs> nice. So it is one of the most unique wedding dresses I've ever seen in a oh, movie. Oh, for sure. Yeah. And it's, it's a, the amount of fabric, the way that it moves when she walks. She's a, 
this is sad. <laughs> she's 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 sucking the blood of a small child when they see her. Right. So when she's walking away from them, her dress is so big, you can't even see that she's holding this toddler. Like yeah. A, it's a pretty big toddler, like a three-year-old. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when she turns around, it's like, how are you hiding all that? What the hell? That's a big dress. Yeah. Um, it's It's very... It makes her, and her face is painted white with this orange red lipstick, kind mm-hmm. of like when they do Queen Elizabeth the First in yep. movies. It's just so impactful. She wins, she wins an Oscar for this costuming. And I deserve so. I believe there was also an Oscar for best makeup for this same okay. movie. So it's all great mm-hmm. because. Dracula appears so differently throughout the movie. Right. He's the old guy with the funny, like, Queen Amidala buns. Mm-hmm. And then he's the young guy with the long, dark, curly hair and right. the top hat and those and those round, blue-green sunglasses. Mm-hmm. How did she come up with that? It's wild. It's the most Willy Wonka shit. Right. And it, he's walking in and he doesn't look, he looks enough like the people in the city to be there. But he doesn't look like them. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's, she tricked us. She sure did. She's genius. She's a genius at storytelling. Absolutely. A really cool thing that she did. Um, I'll tell you this last thing about her costuming, about Mina and Elisabetta, Dracula's dead wife. Okay. So she, I go, she assigned a color to all of the main characters in mm-hmm. the cast. Um, and she assigned green to Winona. Okay. Winona Ryder plays both characters Mm -hmm. because we don't know that but she wants us to figure it out subconsciously because of the way she's dressing them that Winona in the movie not the book is the reincarnated Elisabetta okay and that's why Dracula is so into her makes perfect sense and that's what side note about this movie when Dracula is drinking the blood of Winona or Lucy um they like like it. Mm-hmm. They're enjoying it, right? On a on a physical level, definitely. Yes, it's a sexy scene. Mm-hmm. They can see him as like the Wolf Man person or as Dracula. Yeah, other people looking on just see this lady <laughs> writhing yep. like a crazy person, mm-hmm. and none of them think I should go help her. Out I with should that. go figure that out and see if she's good. They're she mostly good? like ah. Scary, and I'm like, I'm I'd not check it out. I'm not trying to be scary when that's the the mood I'm All in. Right. Just saying, mm. three guys who tried to marry Lucy. Seriously though, <laughs> seriously though. Anyways, <laughs> <laughs> so um, Ico puts them in green. They always wear green um, to help us understand that they're connected. And in the scene showing Elizabetta lying on the floor in like the chapel of the castle, the feather pattern on her. Sc- on the skirts of her dress fans out like and it looks like a Chinese phoenix. Okay. And get this. Ooh. I love these connections. The Chinese mythology, the counterpart of the phoenix is the dragon. Who's the dragon? Dracula. Absolutely. Uh and what do phoenixes do? What do they do? They die and then they come back. They come back they as we know again. again. Yes. <laughs> she told us from the beginning. We knew. Oh my gosh. Um, so vampires are so cool. And Mm -hmm. I'm going to obviously watch 97 more vampire movies this month and all year, basically, because they're so good. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but this was this was my first experience reading Dracula, and it was the first time I'd seen Bram Stoker's Dracula, oh, the okay. movie. And um, I just thanks so much. Yeah, <laughs> I had a great time learning about Bram, uh, reading his Valentine to my uncle Walt. It's so good watching the movie. Um, re- listening to and watching interviews of the people who were in the movie and who made the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just turned out to be this very, like, in a way that I never would have expected, multicultural, accepting, um, coming out yeah. <laughs> of so many cool things. And it's just a vampire movie. Yeah. Um, I really, really enjoyed it. Oh, it was so, it's so great. good. The part where Lucy is walking into the, it looks kind of like a maze. Mm-hmm. She's walking out into the garden um, because she's being hypnotized mm-hmm. by Dracula and she's wearing this it's basically just like a gauzy Victorian robe that mm-hmm. that sexy women who've murdered their husbands wear when yeah. they talk on that you know that that telephone uh-huh. <laughs> the one uh-huh. you know I can see it I don't know how to I don't even know what to call it, it but I see a cigarette it. and one of those plastic things like Cruella de Vil mm-hmm. That rope. And as she's walking out into the garden, the wind is blowing it up into the air, into this spooky, crazy, orange, red, gossamer, creepy cloud. Like it, it is so beautiful. And now that I know how many people went into that, how much the actress thought about how this lady moves when right. she is or isn't under the influence of the vampire and what her costuming should represent and yeah. how it should move in the wind and and just like this this whole vision and what Lucy represents as a as a woman who thinks and feels differently than other women of her time. Mm-hmm. I it just I love it. It all stacked up into a really nice week for me. I had a great That's time. Delightful. <laughs> Oh. Okay, you want to have a break and then come back and, and talk about Frankenstein? Let's do it. Okay, see you guys in a minute. Okay, Frankenstein. <gasps> I'm excited. I'm I'm very excited. <laughs> I mean, like, whether we're talking about, like, Dr. Frankenstein or the monster of Frankenstein, like, it's practically synonymous with Halloween and just... Science fiction and horror in general, right? Like, And the goofy part and the scary part. Yeah, for sure. He manages to be both. Like, simultaneously. Mm-hmm. It's wild. It's incredible. The portrayal obviously has changed significantly across the decades, and I think it could be interesting. Like, we look at Mary Shelley's, like, brainchild from the beginning. We branch off from there and see how things have changed. I kind of wax a little philosophical today but not a lot but kind of so we'll we're gonna take a little bit of a tangent today i think that's a big part of frankenstein i think so in reading it i mean the, he's he becomes a person and has to decide what that means right so it's they're linked exactly 100 percent. okay so first i want to look into the early life of mary shelley the kind of influences that she had and the things that impacted her. All right, so Mary was born in 1797 to parents that would help to form her in meaningful, thought-provoking ways. So her mother, Mary Wollstonecraft, and again, mother-daughter sharing a name is my favorite thing. It's really cool. It's so good. I love it so much. (laughs) And especially this time, she was an author herself and in a big way. She wrote the book A Vindication of the Rights of Women, and was arguably one of the first major feminists just ever. 
Wow. She was huge. She was amazing. And this was happening in 1792. Oh, my gosh. How does that happen? She was early to that party. She really was. Or the rest of us were fucking late. I mean, it's a combination of the two, <laughs> which is a little sad. <laughs> She's just wildly cool and, like we said, ahead of her time and arguably ours. Sadly, Mary's mom dies soon after childbirth, but what a legacy to leave behind. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. Mary's dad, William Godwin, was an equally interesting influence in her life. He claimed the profession of political philosopher. Oh, <laughs> does that mean his daddy had money? Uh, probably. That's <laughs> <laughs> guaranteed what this is. And he was the founder of the concept of philosophical anarchism. In his writing, he put forth the idea that man... Once freed from all artificial political and social constraints, stood in perfect rational harmony with the world. In this natural state, man could fully express himself. Beautiful. It's a pretty anti-government sentiment at a time when the world was in a pretty government-establishing mood. So hello, France and USA at this point in time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Whether he fully embraced these ideas and the feminist ideals of his first wife could be questionable. Word really does have it that he was a pretty different person when he was public-facing versus tucked away at home with wife and kids. Mm -hmm. Um, And even when he remarries, he's he kind of just sends Mary Shelley away. She just goes off like... She doesn't really get along with mother-in-law. It's just a thing. His his dad rep is not, not great. great. Yeah. Not great. We'll touch on it a little bit more later, but he's a he's an interesting man, forward-facing to the world. Not great man being a dad to a daughter. Mm. Okay, so Mary, at this point, she's she kind of just ran at life, and at the young age of 16... She elopes with the poet Percy Shelley, and they didn't live their life quietly. Think of fairs. <laughs> they technically weren't married yet. All the police. So much police. <laughs> so much, so much police. <laughs> so they technically aren't married yet, and they won't be until his wife actually commits suicide. Um, they so were trouble. They were some trouble. They had children out of wedlock, and the five that they did have, only one of them ends up surviving. So that's a lot of upheaval oh, and sadness tragic. and tragedy. Um, the massive amounts of debt. <laughs> and they just travel the world trying to avoid it. That's what happens when you're trying to chill with Lord Byron. Mm-hmm. Nobody can game at that level. No, not at all. But I'm going to about to talk about when they do go game with him. Because <laughs> guess what? They make a trip over to Switzerland to go have a fun time with Lord Byron. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so... One particular trip that they took together had the perfect combination of elements to create a novel that would inspire generations to come. This trip happens in 1860 when Mary and Percy go to Switzerland and go visit their friend. That's the name of the book. Mary and Percy go to Switzerland. Mary and Percy go to Switzerland. (laughs) (laughs) It's part of the Matilda series. Oh, I was about to say, it's real spooky. Or or Madeline. Madeline. For sure, Madeline. That's a Madeline moment. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So life was a little dull in what was being termed the year without a summer. After the eruption of Mount Tambora in what is now Indonesia, a pretty significant shift in the Earth's climate occurred and rain was pretty constant, forcing people inside the Swiss nation and this trip included. (laughs) Unfortunately, but fortunately. (laughs) The whole game's rained out. Yeah. All year. All year long. Great. All year long. So the group made up of Mary, 
Percy, host Lord Byron, <laughs> and additional guest John Polidori. I don't know how we decided the we were saying his guy. name. The vampire guy. We know him. <laughs> yeah. From the last time. From the last time. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... They do what any of us are going to do when you get bored and you're stuck inside and they're going to get a little spooky. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they decided they're going to start reading German ghost stories. And when they finish that, they decide that they're going to start a little competition and write ghost stories of their own. This is my favorite origin story Isn't of anything. Isn't great? I love it so much. It's so good. We're in a creepy house in creepy weather and we're going to write scary stories. After reading creepy stories beforehand. <laughs> so good. <laughs> it's so good. Are you afraid of the dark? Yes. Absolutely, I am. Yes, Lord Byron. Yes. I am very frightened. I'm a little afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Help me, please. So, the results are a mixed bag. Percy and Lord Byron didn't really even finish a story at all. Sounds like them. That makes sense. Not good at finishing. (laughs) Nah. Damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Polidori came up with a short story that is said to have inspired the 1819 novel The Vampire. (gasps) There we go. So there it is. All kind of brainchild coming from one trip being stuck in the rain and telling ghost stories. Mm -hmm. But Mary's Frankenstein definitely owes the rainy day shenanigans for its official beginnings. For days. Four days. So they've started this. She can't come up with anything. She's got writer's block so bad. (laughs) So bad. But conversations around her sparked a bit of inspiration. So Percy and Byron took a little bit of a philosophical term. And they started talking about whether science of the time had the capability of, like, creating life. Mm -hmm. Not a totally new concept. Mary herself had already been interested in galvanism. Basically, the concept that a dead body would move and be animated when stimulated with electric currents. Electricity is so um, mysterious at this for point. For sure, still. for sure. Like, we're still, they're still. And, it's a I little mean, magical. It's mysterious to me also. Same. Um, they're, but they're still learning to understand it. Right. And Mary Shelley's a smarty pants. For sure. So she's been reading shit. She, she kind of has an idea of the concept. Yeah. Yeah. So. Cut to that night, and full concept came to her via creepy as hell waking nightmare. (laughs) Describing the dream, Mary writes, and this is a quote of hers, I was the pale student of unhallowed arts, kneeling beside the thing that he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out, and then on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life. He sleeps, but he is awakened. He opens his eyes. Behold, the horrid thing stands at his bedside, opening his curtains and looking on him with yellow, watery, but speculative eyes. So she's like looking at this, like in the dream, she's this person looking at this happening. She's the one who was like here and like created it. That's crazy. Spooky. (laughs) So Mary runs with this idea and needless to say, she won. (laughs) And what she had written was good. She decided to see what would happen if an audience outside of her three housemates saw the story. And Percy actually really did encourage the idea by proposing she extend the short story, make it into a novel. They also needed the money. Um, For sure did. So it's not necessarily all altruistic. (laughs) There's a little bit of a like selfish thing there. Yes. I get it. I understand. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta pay the bills. So Mary agreed and first put out the novel... In London in 1818, anonymously. She didn't put her name to it. And there was a lot of speculation at the time as to who wrote this. 
who did this? Here's my question. Were there a lot of men publishing things anonymously? How how was this still a secret plan? How is this a secret plan? Why didn't they say, oh, no name? So it's a girl. Right. I, I'll, I'll have to look into some that. People, so some people, I can't remember who it was who actually like nailed it right on the head. And they were like, it's a woman. It's her. Mm. For everybody, everybody thought that it was Percy. Of course. Percy probably said it was when he was out drinking. <laughs> Guys, I wrote it. It was me. I... I came up with the idea for it. He might not have written it, but I bet you he said he came up with the idea for it. TikTok told me something. God damn it. That broke my heart. I can't handle a broken heart. Are you ready? Uh. Apparently. And it hurts even more because she's a crazy girl. Mm-hmm. And you know how I feel about my fellows. Mm-hmm. I don't even want to say it out loud. Mm-hmm. Apparently, most of my favorite parts... Of novels written by F. Scott Fitzgerald were the plagiarized words of his wife, Zelda. I'm kind of not surprised. Two things I hate the most in the world. People who are mean to crazy people Mm -hmm. and plagiarism. Yep. And mm, mm, mm. I don't like any of it. So I'm going to have to go to therapy about that thing specifically for several years. I'll let you know how it turns out. Sign me up, please. Ruin my life. Mm-hmm. Anyways, Percy's also an asshole. Anyways, so we're going to cut to three years later. Three in years 1821, later. Mary is ready for the public to know her name and that she's the one who wrote this. Atta so girl. she publishes a second edition in France with her name on it. And reception of the book runs the whole gambit. Some thought it was a literary genius. Others described it as, quote, a tissue of horrible and disgusting absurdity. <laughs> Rude, but cut to when people go so hard, right? (laughs) Let's let's now cut to when people find out that it was written by a woman, and here is an additional review that it garnered. Mm. The writer of it is, as we understand, a female. This is an aggravation of that which is the prevailing fault of the novel. But if our authoress can forget the gentleness of her sex, it is no reason why we should. And we shall therefore dismiss the novel without further comment. That's why we're all so mad. That's why we're all Because you keep dismissing us and our cool stuff. Right? Oh my gosh. It's super fucked up. That's infuriating. It is infuriating. (laughs) It is just... mm. Like... That's like when when uh, when Scarlett's like, I can't worry about that today. I'll think about it tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh my god, mm. I hate it. <sighs> okay, but it makes it out there. It becomes a big deal. It's still a big deal even after they know she's a woman. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the book that she wrote because it, it is so a really much. good one. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. I love it. So the first thing that I want to call out is the actual title of the novel. So it's Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus, Mm -hmm. which I think is important. The full title says a lot about Mary's intentions in writing. Mm -hmm. So for those of us who don't know, Prometheus is about to take us back to Greek mythology, which we just apparently can't stay away from ever because we're obsessed. Can't stop, won't stop. Never. Not ever in our lives. (laughs) So depending on the Greek writer... Prometheus does take a few forms. One in particular illustrates him as the titan creator of humankind, creating bodies back on earth that he fashioned out of clay for the gods to put some life into. Prometheus helps the humans, showing them how to hunt and make offerings to Zeus, but Zeus thinks that what they're giving him sucks. 
He's not having it. <laughs> so he says, no fire for you, and storms off in typical Zeus fashion. These presents are dumb. You guys suck. I'm going home, and you don't get anything else. <laughs> so Prometheus feels like this is some bullshit and gives them some fire behind Zeus's back. Mm-hmm. Um, so in true form... Zeus shows his frustration and anger in mild ways and doesn't do anything much at all. And that's an absolute fucking lie. (laughs) He totally fries his ass. Prometheus is chained to a rock, tortured for eternity, just for the sheer audacity of doing any of that. Yep. Yep. Isn't he the one who gets his liver eaten by a... Continuously every every day. day. Every day. What's the name of the... Sisyphus, who pushes the rock. Pushes the rock. Okay. Mm -hmm. Nope. He just gets his (sighs) insides eaten out. That sucks. It kind of sucks. It's not the greatest. The parallels in Mary's Victor Frankenstein and Prometheus, they're they're good and you can see it and you can feel it and you can see where she's going. But I still feel like it's kind of tenuous. Right. It's more like um, inspired by. Yes. Rather than based upon. Right. Like you got to look at intent and Prometheus's intent was ultimately for the betterment of humanity and the eternal torment that he suffers comes from God, something bigger and greater outside of him. Mm -hmm. Victor attempts to take the role of God onto himself and it's his own hubris and everything else that really ends up leading to his own demise. Mm -hmm. Like it's similar. You can see how they're adjacent, but I don't see the whole like par- like they're 100% parallel yeah. in the same mm-hmm. other than light yeah but yeah victor frankenstein is um self-important 100% self-important and i don't know prometheus personally but i feel like he's the opposite of that right he seemed like he was really trying to just be yeah. helpful and good the intentions were were completely the opposite. We're his little clay babies, and he wanted us to be warm. We're his little clay babies. <laughs> <Aww>. <laughs> Thanks, Prometheus. <laughs> so I got into this this week and, like, realized probably not a lot of people know the full story of Frankenstein. Does that make sense? That makes sense, yeah. I feel like that, because in talking about it with people, I realized a lot of people don't really know you guys it's not very long so if you want to just dig in i 100% recommend it it's really good you can borrow mine 100% so what i'm gonna do here i'm this is spoilers cut out the next like five minutes because i'm gonna give a brief synopsis of the book (laughs) just so that way going forward you guys kind of have an understanding of what we're talking about and what we're going for Mm -hmm. so again this is your spoiler warning Stop listening if you don't want to know. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we're going to start in the North Pole on a ship with Captain Robert Walton, who is writing letters to his sister. So again, mirroring um, Mm -hmm. Dracula about his current trip that he's on. While here, he comes across a man named Victor Frankenstein traveling by dog sled and sick as hell. (sighs) He's not having a great time. (laughs) So Victor tells the captain basically his entire life story. Growing up in Geneva, going to medical school, and the ultimate discovery of all, the ability to create life from death using electricity and dead tissue. He worked at this tirelessly until he was successful, but the creature he brought to life was to him so monstrous and repulsive, he couldn't bear to look at it and ran his chicken ass away. And at this, this, through the whole thing, manages to somehow 
relate that he was very privileged and also that he's a big brat about it. 100%. 100%. Victor's a weenie. Victor's a real big weenie. Yeah. <laughs> For those of you who don't know, Victor's not the hero. In no. This. Just, no. Just throwing that out there. And in the version that my um, Victorian lit teacher had us watch, um, the monster is actually a very handsome man. Mm. And I'm still messed up about it, honestly. That's fair. That's that's, mm -hmm. that's fair. Why would you do that? Why would you do that to me? <laughs> you can't. I can't have this. It's that long Victorian man wavy hair. Yeah. Gets me every time. Every fucking time. Yikes. Yikes, Aroni. All right. So Victor falls. Yikes, Aroni. I don't think I've ever said that to anybody in public before except Brian. <laughs> It's forever now. It's forever now for all of you. It's for everyone. And that's the scariest part of this whole episode. Absolutely. <laughs> this is what I'll think about all night tonight. <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. So Victor falls ill for months straight. And when he regains some health, he finds out that his creation has murdered his little bro. And that someone else has been hanged for the crime. Mm -hmm. Cut to later. And a walk in the mountains. And Victor comes across his creation. The creature talks about everything that has happened since Victor was a dick and abandoned him. So he survived on his own. He's been living in a shack next to the family's house. He learned how to read, to speak. And he tried connecting with this family that he was living next to, but he was ultimately rejected in a similar fashion by them as he was by Victor himself. Because he's scary looking. Because he's a bit scary looking. And he kind of realizes this at this point. He understands, like, okay, I'm apparently off-putting to everybody else. Mm -hmm. It kind of sucks. And big. Huge. He's huge. So it kind of talked about it a little bit. Like, how do you put together a tiny person with tiny bits when you're having to, like, put it together? Mm-hmm. It, it just, it made sense why he had to be big. But he is. He's huge. He's, like, eight feet tall. Yeah, he's very big guy. He's gigantic. All, all the longest parts. Mm. Oh, whoops. <laughs> I walked right into that one. Well, I mean, he's eight feet tall, so probably. <laughs> but like, they're feet? not all from the same person, so who knows? Who knows? It could be a whole... We'll stop there. Let your mind go where it will. He's a Mr. <laughs> Potato Head. Mm, it's true. <laughs> so, the creature also at this point confirms that he's he was the one who killed Victor's brother. Knowing that society is just going to keep treating him as a monster, the creature asks Victor to create a companion for him, and at first Victor agrees. But when he's almost finished with the new female creature, he gets scared about the possibilities, like what if they fucking have children, and he just tears her apart in front of his monster. Who so just wanted someone to hold his hand. That's all like he, he just wanted. wanted someone to love him. He literally just wanted somebody to give a fuck. Just mm -hmm. a single fuck. And people wouldn't. I told you he was a weenie. He's a weenie. He's a fucking... Mm. Anyways, the creature is pissed. Mm -hmm. And with... I don't know what I was going to say. Okay, the creature is pissed. And with his new revenge plotting, he is going to kill Victor's best friend, as well as his future bride. He can read now, so all he bets are He can read off. now, and he can, he can do it all. He's yeah. smart as hell. At this point... <laughs> Victor is ready to destroy his original creation, and he's going to follow him all the way to the Atlantic. Or to the Arctic, not the Atlantic. That's not that far. <laughs> um, so they went down to the corner. They were there. <laughs> they were there. Ta-da! <laughs> um, cut back to the ship at the beginning. Victor has found the creature, but he dies before he can kill it. 
At this point, the creature is found on the ship. He still thinks Victor kind of sucks, but he also mourns Victor's death. It's the only person he knows. It is. It's the only person who's ever really gave him any kind of somewhat of a consideration. Mm-hmm. Um, he tells Captain Walton, and Captain Walton is actually an interesting character who actually shows some char- like moral character. He's mm-hmm. got something to him, and he actually listens to the creature and listens to him talk about like his final plan is that he's going to go out in the ice and he's going to die so that this life that he had that was only sadness and suffering could just be done. He was just sick of it. Mm-hmm. He was over it. And that's basically it in a nutshell that glosses over so much detail. Mm-hmm. So even if you read, even if you heard this part and you haven't read the book, go read the book. 100% yeah. go read the book. It's really, really lovely. It's really, really nice. It really, really delves into a lot of interesting, important social situations. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's really, really incredible. It's really, really, really good. Okay, so I want to talk about some other additional interesting like influences and parallels that this book offers and draws from. One is the French Revolution. Well, that's a big one. No, that's a big one. That's a big one. There has been some debate that Frankenstein's monster is the personification of the French Revolution, or maybe even just revolution in general. He, he was framed around the question of what happens when you start something for good reasons, but it doesn't turn out quite the way you hoped it would. Mm. So I'm going to read a quote here really quick from an English professor named Stephen Barrent from the University of Nebraska. I thought this was really interesting. Okay. Dr. Frankenstein talks about it as being created, and he envisions it's this beautiful creature with this lustrous hair and everything. Then it comes to life, and he's terrified of it. He thinks it's ugly, so he refuses to accept responsibility. He refuses to love it, um, and he refuses to love what it amounts to. The creature goes out, and because he looks so different from everybody else, everybody hates him. It's almost a parable of today's international politics about people's unfounded fears of what's not like them. But I do think that's what happens when a revolution happens and you're not ready for the results. Woof. Woof, indeed. Oh, man. I can see it. I felt it. Yeah. I read that and I was like, yeah, I get that. Damn. That's big. Mm-hmm. This book also deals in really subtle ways with feminism. Ooh. With big time with feminism. And let's call back to mom and the fact that she was po- quite possibly the first feminist. <laughs> quite possibly the coolest bitch to ever exist. Eve Mary. Yes. Yeah. 100. <laughs> <laughs> so... I also want to pull in here that her dad's a real fucking asshole. So also understanding that Mary was reminded by her father regularly that if she hadn't been born, her mom would still be there. That's a thing he said to her a lot. My gosh. What? It's (laughs) fucked up. So with that, with her mom being a feminist in mind and with her dad saying this fucking bullshit in mind... The idea that women are silenced and less than was heavily apparent to Mary, and it's reflected in her book by the portrayal of female characters. So I'm going to read a quote from the same person one more time because I feel like he just nailed it and I didn't need to rewrite it on my own. He got it. Perfect. Um, so the women in the novel are silenced. 
Victor is engaged to Elizabeth, and on their wedding night, the creature shows up and tears her apart. Victor has created the creature's mate and decides against it at the last moment, so he rips that apart while the creature is watching. Justine, the nanny of Victor's brother, is killed. Victor's mother dies. And this is another thing that feminist criticism has pointed out. It's so puzzling that a woman author would do that to all of the women in the novel. But then it becomes a sort of parable of what happens in a totally masculinized world. Mm. Ouch, Mary. Yeah. She got it. She was subtle. She wasn't she wasn't being overt with it. It was when you read it, when you look at it, it's intentional. Well, and even if she doesn't do it like I'm making a statement, when you look at her life, mm-hmm. what does she know of women? They try and then it destroys them. Exactly. The world just eats them up, tears them apart. So in a, so in a world where, like they say, you write what you know, that's what she knows. That's what she knows. That's exactly what she knows. I mean, and Lord Byron is a fucking womanizer. Oh, for sure. Percy is unfaithful and takes credit for her work. Yeah. Like, she's t- she's so small. Yeah. She clearly outshines them. 100%. And they think she's fine. Yeah. And eventually, the sadness of her life destroys her. Yeah. So, it's what she sees women do. It is. That's devastating. Isn't that? I read that and I was just like, that's so, that's it. Oof. That, and it was, a, it was an oof. Okay. So I want to do a little bit of a character analysis on Frankenstein's monster. And I want to point out because I, I asked some friends some questions on like, wh- what would you want to know about Frankenstein? Like, oh. what, what are some things that you might want to know? And one that I got um, actually from a couple people was... Does Frankenstein's monster actually have a name? No. No. It it depends on the viewpoint of the person talking about him, like the point of view or like who's talking about it. It's either creature was the way that Mary kind of describes it in a in a general term. She Mm -hmm. was trying to make that be the what's the word I'm looking for? Neutral name for it. Yeah. But Victor Frankenstein calls him monstrous beast devil he's it is always bad things Mm -hmm. always so there there is not a name for the creature for frankenstein's monster it is just frankenstein's monster it is not frankenstein just so we're clear (laughs) i was building a little frankenstein lego oh the name of that briquette is frankenstein Mm. and i was like seth i'm gonna put it on my tiktok because i made a little time lapse video um do you think everybody will know that it's named Frankenstein and I know that it's the Frankenstein's monster? Right. Or like, like, how do I tell them I know? <laughs> like, I know, you guys. I promise I know. But I don't have to worry about it because um, uh, no one sees my TikToks. <laughs> so, that is not even true. <laughs> so it can't hurt my feelings. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I was so worried somebody was going to get on me like, it's actually Frankenstein's monster. I know. Hasn't happened. So oh, good. it was uh, an unfounded worry. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. That, yeah. Well, I mean, depending on the adaptations now that you see, yeah, it's Frankenstein, I guess. <laughs> I mean, what would make Frankenstein more upset right? than knowing that people called his creature by his name? That's true. So it's kind of just karma. Do you think Frankenstein's monster... Would rather be called, like, Frankenstein, the shit-awful person who made him? Or do you think that would be not good? 
I think he'd want a name. I think he'd want a name, too, and would take whatever it would be. Yeah. Yeah. He might have been waiting for his wife to name him. Yeah. Or his his person. Yeah. That would have been nice. That would have been great. He was reading, like, real philosophy. Yeah. He was understanding human capacity he, for emotion. He was smart. He was wildly smart, which is not what you think of. No. Not what you think of at all. So I'm sure he, I'm sure he thought, what, what would anyone call me? Mm-hmm. And what, what do you matter if you can't even be called? Right. That's sad. The importance of a name. Yeah. okay so i talked about that i do want to talk about now that we're kind of on this subject the smart thoughtful intelligent version of frankenstein versus what we often see in movies the mute one the one who for all intents and purposes is childish and unknowing and can't do anything and bonks his big head on stuff yep come lumbersome and just mm -hmm. green green Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like we talked about earlier, the original portrayal of Frankenstein's monster is intelligent. He can express himself. This differs on large scale from the portrayal I was more familiar with. The break from this original concept actually started in a stage production of the novel that came out pretty recently after the book was published. Mary Shelley actually went to see this version and really enjoyed it a lot. She actually, she did the same thing as Bram Stoker. I was about to say Bram Stoker. <laughs> I think he probably did. I think that's a documentary. Mm, yeah. That's one of those documentaries. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's kind of in a similar way where she later on revised her story a bit. Okay. And it happened after this play came out. Um. Anyways, so in this version, in this play version, the monster is mute and relied heavily on exaggerated gestures to communicate. Oh. So that's kind of where we start seeing like the big arms, the big arms and flailing. And it was just it started there. But then 1931 and the movie Frankenstein that came out then really sold the image we know today. So this idea. This is iconic. The adaptation varies really distinctly from what Mary Shelley gave us. Instead of intelligence, um, we get bumbling and grunting and lumbering and struggling. This is bolts in the head. This is body parts from cadavers. This is the iconic quote, it is alive. (laughs) This is that. This is this is the Frankenstein. This is it. Um, The most important This version also cannot speak, and this is crucial. And I'm going to read another quote here. This is a greater defining difference than any physical variation or take could ever be. Conversing and interpreting his world through grunts and moans, Boris Karloff, who played Frankenstein in this one, just so we're all aware, Monster has a childlike aura about him that leaves a lingering effect on viewers. When the creature commits a heinous act, the audience's first reaction isn't necessarily one of horror, but a controversial feeling of pity, mm. which is kind of true. I mean, it yeah. it does give you there's the side of him being able to converse and talk about the way he feels and making you feel pity that way. But there's just something about someone who like the portrayal of him in this movie is really absolutely childlike. Like you see the way that he reacts to things that he's done and like when he does kill someone, he's it's something that he didn't really it makes it seem like it was something he didn't even intend to do or understand what happened. Mm. And so he's sitting here looking at what happened and is in just shock and 
oh. is distraught about it. So it's it's a different portrayal of this vulnerability. That's I very guess. different. Because, yeah. Because it's intentional. Right. The themes that explored, like this movie was actually really, again, also ahead of its time. It was really important. It talks about what it's like to be other. It talks about ethics and scientific study. It talks about what isolation does to development and growth. And then even its sequel, so Bride of Frankenstein, mm -hmm. that has huge, what's the word I'm looking for, dialogue on LGBTQ situations. Really? I've never seen yeah, it. It super does. It's it's an interesting one. And I would say, like, we're going to talk later about what my favorite <laughs> Frankenstein movie is. Do you want to go for a roll and say, hey? <laughs> roll, roll, roll and say. <laughs> um, but uh, these two are really, really good and are probably tied for, like, my second favorite. Oh, you know what? That's the thing I meant to tell you, but I didn't put it in my notes. Ooh. The reason that Dracula has that accent, I want to drink your blood, mm -hmm. is because of Bram Stoker's book. Really? Yes. And so it probably leaks into why people in different movies maintain that accent when they're involving monsters. It makes a lot of sense. Like, this is how monsters <laughs> this talk. This is just how they do it. <laughs> it. That actually makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. Okay. I also kind of want to get into the concept of Frankenstein being good versus Frankenstein being evil, because that's obviously like he's we all think of him today. Halloween time as a monster, as scary, as bad, as those things. To me, typically. it seems like the point is that he's not right. either. I think when you know the story behind it, that's true. Um, I do. And I think when you have a brain, I'm going to say this right now. You get that that's true once you understand the story, because we're going to go back to 2018 to a headline that was in the Sun newspaper, and it reads as follows, and I'm rolling my eyes, so please ignore it. Frankenstein's. Snowflake students claim Frankenstein's monster was a, quote, misunderstood being and is, in fact, a victim. Someone got paid to write that? Someone got paid to write that bullshit. That's so what are you gonna pay to write that bullshit? What is what is the point of that article? The, it's also just to a, be mad. Tell me this is like a tell me you haven't read the book without telling me situation. Um, tell me that or tell you, me that you have no yeah. idea about anything without telling me situation. If you don't have something to be mad at, you'll die. Pretty much. Oh, we mm. don't want our children learning about empathy. We can't we'll have ruin that. everything. It will ruin everything. <laughs> <laughs> I hated it. <sighs> Mary Shelley wrote the monster in the book as a character that couldn't be taken at face value as all good or all evil. He's a murderer, obviously. But yeah. from the beginning, he was also a victim. Mary wrote him with the idea that life isn't so black and white and that one person is completely bad or one person is completely good. That's the whole point. Yeah. Um, Duh. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we're starting to forget that lately. I'm going to read a quote. I have a lot of quotes, but I just found like people had really good, interesting points on some stuff. So there's an article titled Mary Shelley, Frankenstein and Moral Philosophy. I'm going to read a quote from that really quick. OK. <clears throat> when relating the creature's story, Shelley draws on philosopher Jean-Jacques Rousseau's noble savage paradigm in which individuals are born wholly good and evil is an after effect. The result of so the result of a society that corrupts. The creature Shelley depicts is initially a decent sort, generous, helpful, innocent, and naive. At the same time, 
He is rejected by his creator, shunned, treated violently by strangers, and forced to live in isolation. He was not born evil. What evil he had was made by circumstances. I just just imagine what it would feel like to every time a person saw you, they screamed like they've never been so scared in their whole life. Right? Can you imagine that? Like, no. No. It's a dread. I'm sure it's a dreadful feeling. It has to be a horrible existence. And he was just alone. He was just all by himself. And that does not mean that people are mean to you. You should murder other people. Absolutely not. But you also have to sit here and think that he's a self-taught being who had to kind of learn things on his own. And the things that we taught him by our reactions were not positive. positive. No one taught him about anything. Right. About kindness, about caring. Nobody said, you know, sometimes you will hurt your feelings, but it'll be okay. Mm -hmm. They just screamed and ran or tried to hurt him or told right. him he was a monster right that that that'll wear on you that'll <laughs> that'll do some damage that'll do some damage for sure okay so i'm done with the philosophy i'm done with the with the uh all of that really cool Let's talk about Young Frankenstein just briefly. It's not going to, we're not going to harp on it forever, but it is my favorite Frankenstein movie. It's so good. It's that movie that your parents would say is inappropriate, but also they're the ones who told you to watch it. So my dad, my dad is amazing. (laughs) Let me me tell you guys about my dad here really quick because he's a genuinely wonderful person. Um, So I grew up watching so many things that you should not watch (laughs) growing up as a Mormon kid. I watched it. I watched Rocky Horror Picture Show, which is also a depiction of Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. Um, I watched Young Frankenstein. I watched so many things. And he was just like, you need to know, like, you need to see these things. You need to know they're, they're culturally important. They're significant. They're good. Like, Mm -hmm. they're just my dad told us to watch uh, Spaceballs. Yep, we super watched that. My dad's the one who told me to watch Bull Durham, mm-hmm. <laughs> which has like a sex montage. Oh, for sure. But it's my favorite baseball movie of all time. <laughs> so many. <laughs> can, can I just... Young can I Guns. Just, oh, yeah. <laughs> can Blazing tell, Saddles. Blazing Saddles. Can <laughs> I tell you what my dad did? Because this is hilarious. So I think I don't I don't know the intent behind this. So we watched... <laughs> We watched Rocky Horror Picture Show. We watched all this stuff. But when we watched Down Periscope and they say the words penis tattoo, he muted it. (laughs) That's where the line is drawn. That's where the line is drawn. (laughs) So that's the kind of varied situations that I grew up in. And thank you, Dad, though, for seriously giving me like exposure to just the world that's so great oh my gosh it's penis amazing tattoo. penis tattoo <laughs> now i'm gonna say it and you can't mute me you can mute me that's actually 100 possible for a podcast <laughs> you can mute whatever you, you want you can mute whatever the hell it's you want totally up to it's you. totally fine that's your choice <laughs> oh my god i love it gosh young frankenstein is the best so good so just the cast i'm gonna read off like the iconic ones there's more iconic ones that I'm listing, but like Gene Wilder as Dr. Frankenstein. <laughs> it's Frankenstein. <laughs> it's so good. Oh, and Peter Boyle as the monster. Marty Feldman as Igor. Cloris Leachman. <laughs> so, Stop it. It's so good. The Turn whole test is so the good. The candlestick 
back. back. <laughs> so fucking good. It's so fucking good. I like that is immediately on my Halloween list. You guys should watch it. It's just really, really funny. It's quality um, shit. You'll you'll be howling. And it's really like for how funny it is, it's also wildly on par. <laughs> Yeah. In ways with the original story. Oh, it's different. It's a different telling of it. Mm-hmm. But the intentions behind it and the things that it, the way it goes about things is so on par with Mary Shelley, I feel like. Yeah. Like it is like, it is so on point, but it's funny. It's f- so funny. And it captures like the weird, the pretentious something about Frankenstein. Yeah. That you just can't put your finger on it, but mm-hmm. you know, that guy's a dick. Like he gets that. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. Can it's I tell you movie. that as a child, I didn't know that putting on the Ritz was not just this. <laughs> you thought it was just, I like that. <laughs> not just this. So when I did a dance to it, hey, everybody who like, I'm not going to do the dance. Those of you who say, <laughs> you know who you are. I'm not doing the dance. <laughs> but when I did a dance to it, I was like, oh, so young Frankenstein. <laughs> And everyone was like, what the fuck is that? Because none of them were allowed to watch none that. Of them they were, were children. to be watching it. That's fantastic. That's fantastic. <laughs> I, I'm going to. Oh, from Frank Frankenstein. Yeah. That's so good. I yeah, know that. It's a great time. I'm going to close here with a quote from Mel Brooks. He's talking about he and Gene Wilder worked together on this. Definitely. This. A filet a do. Uh, uh, what do you call those? Like a they're a, they're a Lennon and McCartney. Mm-hmm. They make weird magic together. They make beautiful magic together. <laughs> so this is a quote that he talked about when they kind of came up with and decided that they were going to do this. So he says, "I was in the middle of shooting the last few weeks of Blazing Saddles <laughs> somewhere in the Antelope Valley, and Gene Wilder and I were having a cup of coffee, and he said, "I have this idea that there could be another Frankenstein." I said, "Not another. We've had the son of, we've had the cousin of, the brother-in-law. We do not need another Frankenstein." <laughs> I get it. (laughs) But his idea was very simple. What if the grandson of Dr. Frankenstein wanted nothing to do with the family whatsoever? He was ashamed of those wackos. And I said, that's funny. That's funny. And it it was. (laughs) And I said, that's That's funny. funny. So eloquent. (sighs) And it was born. It was born and it was genius and it was everything I wanted it to be. The the amount of things for good and bad that have been done because somebody wanted to make somebody else laugh Mm -hmm. like it's truly the 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 thing that makes the world go around it's so true (laughs) the desperation Mm -hmm. of a person who just wants to make somebody else 100 (laughs) percent they'll do anything yeah they'll make another frankenstein they'll do it (laughs) and find a different way to do it it's it's so fun. It's so good. So you guys should watch that. Add that to your fall Halloween bucket list. Absolutely. And read the book. And, and read, read it. Bram Stoker's Dracula. And watch that movie too. Listen, and if you think it's not that sexy, you should read one of these papers and you missed it because it was sexy and you didn't even know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's those Victorians. Whew, they knew what they were doing. <laughs> they had it figured out. <laughs> they also were horny as hell. Horny. Well, who's not? Who's not, quite frankly. You know, it's just so cool when 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 people get together and make something. Mm-hmm. I really think that there's um, like the the good juju of that, the yeah. mojo that comes off of it shows in the work, right? And you have a bunch of brilliant people who make something. Then you you watch it or you read it, and you think like something about this. Mm-hmm. I'm getting it. Yeah, the magic brain juices. 
One hundred percent. They really, they're really doing it for me. It's so good. Mm-hmm. <sighs> this was a this was a happy moment for I think our literature loving hearts this week. I really liked it. It was really good. It was really fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Get ready for more spooky to come next week. We're gonna talk about haunted places yeah it's gonna be a i'm gonna be a chicken shit i may or may not try and go visit some of them so if (gasps) i don't make it to the recording you know why Uh oh i'm (laughs) either dead haunted something we'll find out we'll find out (laughs) let's do this again sometime (laughs) say hi to your mom for me 